This is Real Fiction Radio. I'm your host, Lori Messing McGarry, and today I'm in conversation with Louisa Traeger, author of The Dragon Lady. She claimed to be a descendant of Vlad the Impaler, allegedly the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. And as a child, she moved between Italy and England. You're listening to WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. This is Real Fiction, a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. Our guest today is Louisa Traeger, author of The Dragon Lady, The Dragon Lady is published by Bloomsbury. The novel is set in 1920s Europe and 1950s white-ruled Rhodesia in southern Africa. The story centers on the real-life Lady Virginia Courtauld, wife of a British textile heir who became known for an exotic tattoo of a dragon on her leg. Novelist Louisa Traeger is a classically trained violinist, who then turned to literature. She is also the author of the critically acclaimed novel, The Lodger. She lives in London and joins us today during a busy international book tour. Louisa, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. The Dragon Lady brings into focus the life of Lady Virginia Courtauld. And before reading this novel, I hadn't heard of them, uh, which seems incredible given their adventures and contributions to civic life. Tell us about Stephen and Virginia Courtauld and how you learned about their life in Rhodesia when it was when it was the white ruled country in southern Africa. So the Dragon Lady blends fact with fiction to tell the story of Lady Virginia Courtauld, who was beautiful and rebellious with a scandalous past. And as you've just said, the tattoo of a snake that ran the, the length of one leg. After a brief marriage to an Italian count, she wed Stephen Courtauld, a war hero, mountaineer, orchid collector, and heir to a textile fortune. I found out about the Courtaulds when a friend asked me if I'd heard about Zimbabwe's secret money. The painting was allegedly hidden in the vaults of the National Gallery of Zimbabwe to keep it safe from Robert Mugabe, the president. I have family in southern Africa and on a trip to Harare managed to find a few of the hidden paintings. There was no Monet, but I did see works by Renoir and Dürer donated to the gallery by Stephen and Virginia Courtauld. My curiosity was piqued and I began to research their lives. The more I found out, the more I felt this was a story I had to tell. 
And we should note that you have a connection to Southern Africa. Your mother is from South Africa. You live in the UK. So you had you really had a connection to the world of the Courtaulds in two continents, if if I have that right. Yes, that's right. And Virginia Courtauld, which you have just who you have just described, she's an incredible character. When she married Stephen Courtauld, as she was a divorcee in the 1920s, and is it fair to say that English society shunned her? Tell us a bit more about her background, where she was born, and why, why that might have been the case. Yes, so I'll start with her background. She was the daughter of an Italian shipping merchant and a Romanian peasant. She claimed to be a descendant of Vlad the Impaler, allegedly the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. And as a child, she moved between Italy and England. So that's a lot of places and allegiances. And little wonder that she grew up complex, insecure and never really belonging anywhere. She was daring and vulnerable at the same time. She liked to shock. She would say whatever popped into her head. And one can imagine eyebrows being raised in polite English society, where being a divorcee and being foreign were, you know, really frowned upon. I I can't get over the, the tattoo. It's such a delight for readers to witness this dragon tattoo, its description. And the character was very clever in wearing dresses that while modest, revealed enough of the tattoo to catch one's eye, which makes for fantastic dinner conversations in <laughs> in the story. Several of the characters that we meet through the course of the novel, some are bold enough to ask her, what is this tattoo? Why in the world did you do this to yourself? And she would create a story kind of unique for the moment. So tell us about that. And then tell us about, if you want to, do you have a personal feeling about why she would have done this to herself. So Ginny told a different story every time she was asked about the tattoo. It was a teenage dare, a romantic gesture for a lover, a membership badge to a secret society. I do have my own theory, but I would rather not give it away. I would like people to read the book and form their own theory. I think that's fair. And that's part of the delight in reading this book, because I've never encountered a character like this. Um, and I want to but I want to come at it from a different angle there. We, we get these wonderful characters in the novel and glimpses of royalty and aristocracy. And the Duke and Duchess of Windsor make an appearance. Um, the composer, Igor Stravinsky makes an appearance, which is interesting because it really brings out your musical sensibilities. We mentioned that you're a classical violinist. So I want to ask you about the balance between fact and fiction. It does seem possible that that the Courtaulds could have crossed paths with these members of society. Do you know that they did or did it just kind of make make a did you make the connection from where they were at time and place? Yes, they did. Mm. So the book broadly follows the known biographical outlines of their life. And, and when I was writing, I looked at the factual information as a skeleton on which to hang the story. But the fiction gave me license 
to imagine myself into the character's thoughts, to invent conversations and details which animated their conflicts and drew out themes I found interesting. But at the same time, I tried to stay as close to their personalities as as I could. In other words, the outline of the plot was already there. And within that, I tried to create my own image of real people. It was really effective, I thought, to employ the Duchess of Windsor, Wallace Simpson, in some scenes because she seemed to share some of the societal challenges that Jenny did. And I could absolutely envision that they would have had kind of a nice connection at the dinner table. Very much so. They had so much in common. They were both foreign divorcees, and they'd both got where they were in life through a combination of personal magnetism and superb style. And I think at the same time, um, when the Prince of Wales fell in love with Wallace Simpson, attitudes to divorce in England softened a little bit. People became a bit more accepting of divorce. But then when he became Edward VIII and he abdicated, the tide swung against divorcees once more. Um, and I think, you know, that those shifts would have affected Virginia very much. There are homes and places that get exquisite analysis in this novel. And before the couple moves to Africa, which we're going to talk about in a moment, I wanted to ask you about Eltham Castle. It's outside of London. The Courtaults purchased this property and did a controversial renovation. Tell us about this. That's right. So during the Middle Ages, Elton Palace was one of the main residences of England's kings and queens. Um, But during the Civil War, it was ransacked and shattered and and it never really recovered. So the Courtaulds bought it as a wreck. Only the medieval Great Hall was still standing. And they renovated the hall and built this extraordinary Art Deco extension And it's kind of like the Tudors meet Hollywood. I mean, it really is extraordinary. And I would urge visitors to England to go and see it. And public opinion was divided. Some people called it a magnificent shrine to the Art Deco style. Others said it looked like a cigarette factory or a cinema with pretensions. (laughs) I love that. I couldn't resist doing a little Googling as I was reading the novel. And this is, and I mispronounced it, Eltham Castle is some something that you can visit today. It is available. It's open to the public. That's right. It's open to the public. Um, You can go and see it and it's really worth a visit. Okay, well, I want to back up a bit. We learn early in the story that the Courtauld family has an extensive art collection. And many of those works eventually make their way to Africa in the gallery, which you mentioned is a inspiration for the novel. I like that art is used really as a vehicle to convey the Courtauld's social responsibility and their pre- their progressive views about culture and race. So by the 1950s, when we get to that space in the novel, the Courtaulds are living in white-ruled Rhodesia. How exceptional were the Courtaulds in that place and time? They were very, very unusual, both in terms of their philanthropy and also in their desire for racial equality. There were a very few white liberals 
at the time, but most were not like that. I want to talk about how your novel has been characterized. I know it's been described as a romance. It's been described as a crime, historical novel. Uh, When I was reading it, I felt just a, a real exceptional psychological depth to the character backstory. How do you characterize this? Well, I like the description of it as a blend of crime, romance and history. Um, But I think above all, it's the portrait of Lady Virginia Courtauld, who was a remarkable woman who chose to swim against the tide. An element of the story that really stayed with me is the depth of plant and animal life. They're really vital in the story. I'd like to know how you approach that research, because what it does is it brings us into the cast of characters. We get to see a range of kindness and cruelty. Talk about how you researched that and how you brought that forward into character. Well, I feel that Africa is almost a character in the book. We mentioned early earlier that my late mother comes from South Africa. And I spent a lot of time in Southern Africa since I was a child. It's deeply, deeply imprinted on me. The huge skies, the smell of the earth, the the harsh sunlight. Africa really gets hold of you in a visceral way. And I think it got hold of Stephen and Virginia too. Um, But at the same time, I felt a lot of despair at the brutality and injustice, which I think the Courtaulds felt as well. And I also sensed, and I'm talking about South Africa during apartheid, I sensed a sort of menace, a tension beneath the surface, a sort of simmering violence, which I think is inevitable in a country where people are oppressed. So they're really all my impressions of Southern Africa that I believe Virginia and Stephen shared. Mm. We get to meet uh, a young political intellectual whose name is well known in international circles. Robert Mugabe enters the novel. And while I had read a bit about the book before, before I dove into it, I have to say I was really surprised to see this connection, though it makes sense. So the Courtaulds do meet Robert Mugabe. He comes to them and wants assistance. Tell us about that. So it's a secret meeting. Um, It had to be conducted in great secrecy because Mugabe and the other nationalist politicians who came with him, Chitepo and Sitoli, were being watched by the secret police. So Mugabe arrived with a crate of mangoes, which he pretended he was selling. And the others came carrying a toolbox and a saw as though they were handymen. So they held this meeting with Stephen at the Courtauld's house. And Stephen was very impressed by them. Uh, In those days, it seemed like Mugabe was a good guy. It was before power corrupted him. And it led to the constitution of Mugabe's Mugabe's party, ZANU-PF, being drawn up at La Rochelle, the Courtauld's house. How did you discover this? Was this information, you know, the mangoes, the secret meeting, and then the content of their meetings, was that something that you found in archives, diaries? 
Um, I found it through talking to older people who lived in the area. And I also saw the signatures of, oh, I need to backtrack. So the Courtaulds had what I call a glass visitor's book. Um, when guests came, they would write their names not in a book, but with a diamond stylus on the Courtaulds window pane. And the signatures of Sitoli and Chitepo are on the window. Okay, that's. I'm so glad you mentioned that because in that scene in the novel, those men signed the screen, signed the window, and Mugabe said, I prefer not to sign this. Yes, yes. But you know, in fact, that he was at that meeting. Yes, I do. I do. I've been told by, you know, people in the area who were alive at the time. Now, the Courtaulds did not have children, but were you able to meet any of the Courtauld extended family members and view their photographs or any remembrances as you were working on this novel? Yes, I met a cousin of Stephen called George Courtauld, who was extraordinarily kind and generous. He shared his recollections of Stephen and Ginny with me. Um, he was a child when they left England, but he says he remembers asking Ginny to do her party trick, which was wiggling the the muscles of her leg, which would make the snake dance. And wow. <laughs> he also shared family photographs and letters which Stephen and Virginia had written, which gave me access to their voices. So it was a huge privilege, you know, to be allowed that kind of access. So when you have a family like this and a unique story and archives, usually they're preserved somewhere. Are, is most of the Courtauld family history in England or is it in Zimbabwe? Both. There's quite a bit in England. Stephen's oldest brother was Samuel Courtauld, who founded the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. So there's a lot available about him in London. Um, I also found a, a huge amount of information about Stephen and Virginia in archives in Zimbabwe. Let's go back to the National Gallery of Art in what is now Harare, and it was Salisbury. That's um, right. Before, when Rhodesia was Rhodesia, Salisbury was the capital, and now it is Harare. There is still a National Gallery of Art. The Courtaults were instrumental in establishing that art gallery. Is that correct? Yes, they were. Um, Stephen was chairman of the first board of trustees. He gave a lot of money to the gallery, and he loaned his own pictures and tapestries. What I love about the gallery and learning about it is the fact that the Courtaults felt that this is a country that deserves to have culture. It deserves to have beautiful museums that you would see in Europe and the United States. And they get a special visitor as the gallery is opening, and it's the Queen Mother. I wanted to make sure I understood early in the novel, when the Courtaults are socializing with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, the the Duke says, oh, I want you to meet my sister-in-law, Elizabeth. Was this the same person? Yes, it was the same okay. person. And there was a moment where Ginny felt a little bit snubbed by the Queen Mother. and But yet she came to the opening of the National Gallery. Did this, in fact, happen in, in real life? Yes, it did happen. It's all based on real life. And I think... That's amazing. 
the fact that Elizabeth, who was then the Queen Mother, was accepting of Stephen and Virginia when she came to Salisbury um, was like a watershed moment for Virginia. It was kind of the acceptance she craved. I just want to backtrack a little to what you were saying about the Courtauld's desire to, um, you know, build up the culture of Rhodesia. They very strongly felt that art should be available for all people and all races. They felt that it shouldn't just be the preserve of the wealthy and the privileged. I think that comes through beautifully in the novel. And I I did have a question about the logistics of getting these priceless works of art to Africa. It seemed to me that Stephen's brother, Sam, was the art collector. Did Stephen inherit these paintings when his brother passed away? No, Stephen was hugely wealthy in his own right. All the Courtaulds were because, you know, they were the heirs to this vast textile fortune. So I think Stephen bought the works in his own right. But I wasn't able to gather a lot of information about the mechanics of that, about, you know, who he bought them from and how he shipped them to Zimbabwe. He had a world-famous collection of Turner paintings and he had 12 Turner watercolours hung on his dining room in Zimbabwe, which is quite extraordinary. Are any of these paintings still hanging in? We should say that the home where the Courtauld's were living in Zimbabwe is now run as a hotel? Yes. La Rochelle, that, that's an right. elegant estate where you can actually stay. It's absolutely beautiful. I was lucky enough to go there on a research trip where I slept in Virginia's bedroom, which made me feel incredibly close to her living, breathing presence. All the treasures, all the valuable objects have been removed. Um, but the atmosphere, you know, is still very much intact. The gardens are well maintained as they as they were created by the Courtauld's. Yes. That's um, extraordinary. Quite a famous botanical garden in Zimbabwe. It's the equivalent of South Africa's Kirsten Bosch Gardens. Cycling back for a second to the, the paintings in the gallery, because I I still find this astonishing that there are um you know, this this level of art exists in Zimbabwe. You discovered that some of these paintings have been, let's say, put into storage. That's right. And there's some controversy around that. Tell us about this. Well, I encountered a high degree of secrecy when I was trying to find out about the collection. The gallery said to me, we're not at liberty to give out the full list of works, but hope the information availed will be of use. And I wonder what is really going on. Did Robert Mugabe know about the paintings? Is Emerson Manangagwa, the current president of Zimbabwe, aware of their existence? And perhaps most important of all, is the collection hidden to stop it from being plundered or has part of it already been seized by Mugabe and his ruling elite? I think there's definitely another book waiting to be written about the secret art of Zimbabwe. Are you the first author to address these paintings. I believe I am, yes. In the novel, Robert Mugabe is young. It's in the 1950s. He is portrayed as a public intellectual. And I've read a bit about him over the years. And in the beginning, he really was considered a 
a person of the people, highly educated. And as you, you mentioned a, a bit ago, he became corrupted by the power. But what I, And so we know how Mugabe is viewed today. How are the Kortals viewed in Zimbabwe? I think people are extremely appreciative of their great generosity to the country. And also they're viewed as a couple who were far ahead of their time. Since the novel's release, I would love to know how readers in England and Zimbabwe and South Africa are reacting to your story. And we talked just a bit about this before started this discussion that you had this book was first released in South Africa and then the UK and then the US. I think we're, we're doing this in reverse order. Of, usually our authors start in the US and then branch out. So you've had the book has been in, in the world for a while. Tell us about readers' reaction and have any questions or reactions surprised you? Well, I'm very grateful because it's had a really lovely reception. In fact, it's sold out and it's been reprinted twice. No surprises, really. You know, I'm I'm just grateful that, that people have responded to the story of this extraordinary woman. You've brought to life uh, an overlooked character in history. And I did a bit of reading um, about your last novel. This seems to be pattern emerging, if, if I have that right. Is this, yes, this is it's drawn to this type of It's absolutely person. right. And it's not something I planned. It's something that just happened. So my first novel, The Lodger, is about a writer called Dorothy Richardson. Virginia Woolf considered her an innovator of modernism um, but she's largely been overlooked by history but she had a fascinating life so my first novel's about her and my next novel that I'm currently writing continues my theme of strong women who live by their own rules. It's about Nellie Bly, America's first female investigative journalist. Nellie faked insanity convincingly enough to get locked up in the asylum on Blackwell's Island. And when she came out, she exposed the conditions which brought her fame and led to more money being set aside for the care of the mentally ill. Nellie went on to do a whole lot of other amazing things, but my novel focuses on that part of her life. You anticipated my question. I was hoping that you would give us a glimpse about what you were working on next. You do find these paths into into these overlooked gems, so I we look forward to that. Well, I have a last question for you. Do you have a book that you like to recommend that perhaps people haven't heard of? Well, something I read fairly recently and absolutely loved is A Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin. Now, I have a feeling she might be more well known in the States than in England, but in England, really not Many people have heard about her, and I just think she's an amazing writer. That's a great suggestion. Well, I want to remind everyone that our guest today is Louisa Traeger. Her novel, The Dragon Lady, is published by Bloomsbury. She is on book tour in the U.S., and you can find more about her tour and background on her website. And Louisa, can you remind us where we can find that? Your your website address is? So my web- website is louisatrager.com. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram 
at Louisa Traeger um, and I have a Facebook page. I love interacting with readers, so do come and say hi. We're so glad that you were able to stop by on your very busy international book tour. So we thank you again so much for coming to the program today. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7 FM, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com. Mm-hmm.